Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Community Radio WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center, a feminist, client-centered, sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we speak with local experts to explore issues that impact our sexual and reproductive health. Topics include, but aren't limited to, reproductive rights, access to health care, feminism, LGBTQ rights, and women's sexuality. We wrap up each show with our Ask Mabel segment, where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. For more information on Mabel Wadsworth Center or to listen to past episodes, visit MabelWadsworth.org. You can also find Reproductive Left on WERU.org in the archives, on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for tuning in. Good afternoon and thanks for tuning in. Today's episode was recorded on January 18th at Mabel Wadsworth Center's annual Roe v. Wade anniversary celebration. The powerful remarks were slightly edited to fit our time slot, and there will not be time for Ask Mabel today. First, you'll hear from Andrea Irwin, Executive Director of Mabel Wadsworth Center, introducing our keynote speaker, Dr. Parrott. I hope you enjoy her remarks as much as I did. So I'm really excited to introduce and welcome our keynote speaker tonight, Dr. Jamila Parrott is a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist who specializes in family planning and reproductive health. She's a graduate of Howard University College of Medicine and completed her residency training in obstetrics and gynecology at Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia. She completed a family planning fellowship at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. During her fellowship training, Dr. Parrott received a master's degree in public health from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. After completion of her fellowship, she returned to her hometown of Washington, D.C., where she served as the medical director of Planned Parenthood of Metropolitan Washington, D.C. from 2011 to 2016. She works as a clinical provider in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Additionally, she serves as a reproductive health care consultant, where she develops, organizes, and facilitates health education workshops and outreach events to diverse audiences and communities. She collaborates with various organizations to provide ongoing support and subject matter expertise on sexual and reproductive health, family planning, and reproductive justice. She's on the faculty at Howard University College of Medicine and at Washington Hospital Center's Fellowship in Family Planning. She's a passionate advocate for reproductive health rights and justice. Dr. Parrott is a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, a member of the Association of Reproductive Health Professionals, and a junior fellow of the Society of Family Planning. She serves on the ACOG Committee for the Healthcare for Underserved Women and as liaison to the ACOG Committee on Gynecological Practice. So please join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Jamila Parrott. It really is an honor to be here to talk with you all about about my work. And, you know, it's interesting. When I first started to do this work as an abortion provider, I was often asked to speak about the work that I do. And at that time, much of the focus was on the technical and procedural parts of my work. Right. So how is an abortion done? What instruments or medications are used? How do you prevent and treat complications? Really, um, but in the last few years, I've, more often I've been asked to talk about the why. Why do women have abortions? Why did I choose this job? 
Why do I continue to do this work in the face of such passionate and often angry opposition? And I always want to come up with some clever or meaningful or profound response to the questions. I want to have a witty comeback for the protesters who accuse me of murder and shove pamphlets of dismembered fetuses in my face as I walk into the health centers where I provide care. I want to have a ready-made answer for the patient who looks up at me during her abortion and says, I'm not like those other girls out there in the waiting room. I don't believe in abortion. How could you do this every day? But most of all, I want to have a meaningful and powerful and succinct response for the question that I know one day will come from my son about the work that I do. But each time I'm asked that clever and ready-made, the profound yet succinct re response escapes me. I only have one. I do this because it matters. I do this because it's important. I do this because this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Now, admittedly, I didn't know growing up that I would be an abortion provider, but I always, always knew I would be a doctor. In fact, I can't remember ever wanting to be anything else. I was one of those really obnoxious kids that walked around with the fake plastic stethoscope and the doctor's bag, and I pretended to perform surgeries and draw blood. I diagnosed family and friends, anybody really who came close enough or sat still long enough with all kinds of imaginary diseases and illnesses. I dispensed, usually unsolicited, medical advice for conditions real and imagined. And I even gave out medication in the form of Tic Tacs. Not to mention that I was, and still am, the undisputed champion in the game of operation in our house. Now, I don't know where this came from. I didn't grow up in a family of physicians. I didn't know any doctors growing up other than my pediatrician that I saw annually for my checkup. But somehow I knew. I knew that this was what I was supposed to be. I could feel it. I can remember when I was applying to medical school, people would ask, what are you gonna do if you don't get in? What's your plan B? And honestly, I didn't consider not getting in. I didn't have a plan B. This was it. I was supposed to be a doctor. I grew up in Washington, D.C., the seat of our federal government, the home of the president of these United States. Washington, D.C. is my touchstone. It's my point of reference. It's my home. People come from far and wide to see my city. They visit monuments and go on sightseeing tours. They often leave having learned a lot about the country we live in and the city that I grew up in. One of the things a lot of people don't know about Washington, D.C., something that they don't learn on those hop-on, hop-off bus tours, is that Washington, D.C. is also home to one of the largest income disparities of any city in the United States. This is a city where the top 10% of earners make six times more than the bottom 10%. This is a place where, that has some of the greatest pockets of poverty of any city in this country. These income disparities are reflected in our communities. They are manifested in high rates of unemployment, poor health outcomes, over-policing, and disproportionate levels of violence. 
Our maternal mortality rate is more than twice the national average, and our HIV rate is three times the CDC's definition of an epidemic. Growing up in Washington, D.C. and bearing witness to these disparities impacted me as an individual, and it shaped the physician that I would become. Although I grew up in Washington, D.C., my family's roots are firmly planted in the South, where the vestige of segregation continues to cast its shadow far and wide. Stories of what it was like to grow up in the Jim Crow South live in recent memory and are told and retold by those who experienced it. The legacy of black bodies that were bought and sold, consumed and disposed of, looms large. And the people who survived were living testimonies of how and what the world thought of us. A recognition of the callous disdain with which this country treats people like me was not just a fable or a story that was talked about during Black History Month in school. It was a lesson passed down to ensure the survival of the next generation, our birthright. This knowledge of how the way, how the world works shaped my family and it shaped me. It influenced the way that I was taught to view the world and my place in it. And it demanded an understanding that the playing field is not level. There are opportunities I wouldn't have privileges that would not be afforded to me because of what I look like, not because of who I am or what I can do. Everyone doesn't get the same shot, and no, it's not fair. The journey towards a career in medicine for me was long. There were bumps and bruises and peaks and valleys. I don't have to tell you it wasn't easy, but here I am, the doctor I always knew I would be. Now, like I said, I knew I would be a doctor, but my choice to become an abortion provider was less clear-cut. And no matter how many times I'm asked and how many times I go over it in my mind, for the life of me, I can't remember choosing to do this work. And so when I'm asked, more often than not, I simply reply, I didn't choose this work, this work chose me. But I know in my heart of hearts that this is not the complete truth. The right, the opportunity, the power to choose is a privilege, and it's one not afforded to all of us equally. We hear that word used a lot in reproductive health and rights spaces, choice. And I thought a lot about that word as I considered what I would say to you all tonight, choice. The word itself suggests that there are reasonable alternatives that one is choosing between. Should we have chicken for dinner or fish? Should we go to the movies this weekend or to the beach? In our offices, as abortion providers, we know that all choices are not created equal. They're not experienced equally. They're not judged equally. And we also recognize that this choice to be in charge of your own body, to control your own fertility, should not be a privilege, but a right. And this right should not be shrouded in secrecy or veiled in shame. This right should not be debated in the halls of Congress and controlled by politicians. This right should not be manipulated for political gain. Choice. If you'll bear with me for a moment, I want to tell you two stories about choices and what they look like. The first story is about a 13-year-old I cared for named Maria. She came into the health center not so long ago with her mom 
And during the discussion with one of our healthcare counselors, Maria revealed that she was pregnant and that this pregnancy was the result of a rape perpetrated by a family friend. This person who her family knew and trusted came into her home, befriended her family, and assaulted her. She was at our health center that day for an abortion, but she didn't want to press charges because of her family's immigration status. They were undocumented, and she was afraid that they would be separated and they would be deported if this was found out during the investigation, pursuit, and prosecution of her rapist. She was 13 years old. She was afraid. She felt alone. The second story is about a patient named Allison. She was 34 years old when we met. Allison was an addict who had been struggling with addiction for many years. She had two other children who were currently being cared for by family members, and she desperately wanted to get clean. But she couldn't qualify for admission to any rehabilitation facility while she was pregnant. For her, this abortion was what she saw as her last and best chance to mend the devastation that addiction had wreaked upon her children and her family. She was brought to us in shackles, flanked by two armed guards from the local jail, where she was currently being held on a drug charge for her abortion. In the years she had spent on and off the street, she had lived through and witnessed unimaginable things. But that day, in our office, when we met, she was also afraid. She also felt alone. What are the choices here? What are the reasonable alternatives to choose between? These two people, seemingly different, but in so many ways the same, each one deserving of all the compassion and dignity that would be afforded to any of us at a difficult time in our lives. These two people who sat down across from me and told me their stories are just two people. Two of the thousands of individuals I care for each year. Not all stories are sad. Not all people are troubled. Not everyone who has an abortion is a victim. These are just two stories. As an abortion provider, I have the privilege of being a compassionate witness to the stories that my patients tell every day. And as an advocate and an activist, I believe that I have the responsibility to tell their stories and mine. Our stories are connected. They're inextricably intertwined. And in telling their stories, I am telling my own. They tell the story of what brought them to see me that day, how easy, or difficult the decision to have an abortion was for them. Why they are angry, or sad, or relieved. Sometimes we are the only ones who knows that they're there, in the clinic, that day. Sometimes we're the only one who will ever hear their stories, who will ever know. And so I listen. I listen to their stories, and if they ask me, I tell them mine. I tell them why I'm there. I tell them what this work is like for me, why it's an honor for me to take care of them, how this is the best part of my work, why I continue to show up to the health centers and walk through those protesters each day to provide care, why I do the work that I do, why we give comfort, why we give support, why we do our best to help people move through our space with dignity. We give what we can, but we also take 
We take from them the things they need to leave behind to move into the rest of their lives. We take shame. We take isolation. We take fear. The stigma and isolation surrounding abortion care is insidious. It is perpetuated in our culture. It is manifest in the media. And now, more than ever, it is personified in our politics. The assaults on reproductive health, rights, and justice all have one thing in common. They encourage us to draw arbitrary lines that separate ourselves from the people that we care for. Even for those of us who are self-described pro-choice or progressive, we say things like, yes, I support a woman's right to choose, but I would never have an abortion myself. Or yes, I support abortion access, but not if she's using it as a form of birth control. We prefer to maintain a safe distance from the truth. And the truth is that the women I care for are not some amoral individuals of ill repute, living in the shadows, making selfish and irresponsible decisions. One in four women will have an abortion in her lifetime. One in four. These are our mothers, our sisters, our friends. These are our neighbors, our co-workers, our daughters. I read a quote once that resonated with me, and it said, there are not women who have babies and women who have abortions. These are the same women at different points in their life. They are all of us, and so I tell their stories, and I tell mine. Whenever I'm asked to talk about my work, I always start by telling my own story because I know that my story is directly related to my work. I bring every part of myself into the work that I do. My story, my history, my experience, it follows me. It follows me into the exam rooms and into encounters with patients. It hangs and hovers, it colors, and some days it consumes. It impacts the way I walk and talk and move through the world. It does this for me, and it does this for my patients. Their history, their legacy, their circumstances and lived experiences, their story impacts the way that they interact with me in that moment and the healthcare system in general. It influences their willingness to follow my recommended medical advice. It affects the likelihood that they will disclose unhealthy or harmful behaviors. It shapes the way that they perceive the patient-provider relationship and the way that they understand my place in it. Just like us, the people we care for carry this with them into our health centers. They carry this, and they carry so much more. If we think back to Maria and Allison's story, we see that they're not simply dealing with an unwanted or an unintended pregnancy. They're dealing with an unwanted pregnancy in the context of so many other complex and competing issues like immigration, incarceration, poverty, and addiction. Understanding that the overlapping identities that many people face multiply by converging and competing oppressions manifest in ways that continue to perpetuate unequal access, underrepresentation, and maintenance of the status quo. For the most vulnerable of our patients, our healthcare systems serve to perpetuate and highlight the existing inequalities that already exist in their lives. They perpetuate stigma. They perpetuate isolation. They perpetuate fear and shame. They reinforce the dominant narrative that we can't be trusted to make decisions about our own bodies, our own lives. 
the systems that align to result in women of color being more likely to have an unintended pregnancy and choose abortion are the same ones that ensure decreased access to quality care, that eliminate social support services, that maintain a pay gap that runs along gender and racial lines. So many of us in this movement have spent our time, our energy, and our resources focused on preventing the overturn of Roe, protecting the right to choose. And don't get me wrong, this is an important issue, but the right to choose means nothing if you can't make it to the clinic to exercise that choice. If you can't raise the children you already have in an environment that is safe and feed them food that is healthy and send them to schools that aren't failing them. When systemic inequity is our platform, focusing exclusively on choice is fundamentally disrespectful. It's grounded in the experience of the privileged and ignores the competing priorities that other communities and individuals face. It's not enough to focus our energy on choice. We need to ask ourselves who gets to choose and who doesn't. To do this, we must create spaces, opportunities for our patients to bring their whole selves into the room, to tell their own stories. They tell stories of trials and triumphs, of successes and disappointments. They tell stories of the complexity of their lives. We must recognize that abortion and contraception and pregnancy happens like everything else within the context of our patients' lives. And so when we as physicians and public health agents, as activists and advocates, seek ways to care for those in need, these actions must be grounded in that context as well. In the coming months and years, under an administration that is focused on building barriers, literally and figuratively, on alienating communities and dividing us all, we'll be called upon to fight against what feels like worsening storms and rising waters. We'll need to double down on our commitment to reproductive health and most importantly, reproductive justice and draw upon our deepest belief that every person deserves an opportunity to decide what happens to their bodies and in their lives for themselves. When the term reproductive justice was coined by a group of black women in 1994, this concept that places reproductive rights within a social justice framework deliberately left out the language of choice. These black women, having returned from the International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo, where the international community identified reproductive rights as a human rights issue, met at the Illinois Pro-Choice Conference in Chicago. And while discussing their lives and their communities in the context of the reproductive rights movement here in the United States, they could relate. The women gathered saw that as black women, they related to the lived experiences of communities around the world that had been historically unable to access reproductive health care and left out of discussion on health care services more broadly. Given that the women who developed this framework represented communities that they felt had few real choices, instead they integrated the concepts of reproductive rights, social justice, and human rights to coin the term reproductive justice. 
And a few years later, in 1997, the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Health Collective was founded by 16 women of color-led organizations. They had a focus on addressing the social, political, and economic inequalities that contribute to infringements on reproductive rights. Their goal was to affect this change through grassroots mobilization and public policy action. This reproductive justice framework draws attention to the importance of changing structural inequalities that impact women's reproductive health and their ability to control their reproductive lives. It is intentional, it is on purpose, and it happens outside of the health center. In order to make our work to advance reproductive health and rights meaningful and sustainable, we have to move outside the doctor's office in the form of advocacy and activism. The reproductive justice framework isn't just an exercise in intellectual dis discourse. This framework is a lens through which we must view all of the work that we do in the reproductive health and rights spaces. It must be operationalized and integrated into our systems and into our structures. Doing abortions is not enough. And this is hard work. Make no mistake, there is a lot of work to do here. But don't be dismayed. And more importantly, don't be distracted. Don't be distracted by the rhetoric. Don't be distracted by the tweets. Don't be comfortable in your positions of privilege. This is not a spectator sport. Get up, get out, and fight. Fight the dangerous assaults on reproductive rights that don't begin and end with Roe. Fight the state-level attempts at rolling back access to reproductive health services for our most vulnerable patients. Fight the stigmatizing language that creates false dichotomies between us and them. Fight for the freedom of others, even when your freedom is not in jeopardy. Our complicity puts us at direct odds with the freedom we say we seek. Let's be clear about one thing. We have choices bestowed upon us because of our privilege. Privilege and oppression are two sides of the same coin. But privilege in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. The challenge is to recognize that privilege and to understand how it manifests in our own lives. And we must find ways to use the privilege we have to affect change. So many of us here in this room have power and privilege that few will ever know. What will you do with it? Will you continue to participate in and perpetuate a two-tiered system of healthcare, one that's divided along economic lines, one that differs based on your socioeconomic status, your zip code, your race, your immigration status? This is not equity. This is not choice. Supporting the right to choose means that we have a responsibility to advocate for justice in those choices. Justice for Maria, justice for Allison, justice for Jane Moe, a minor just released from federal custody on Sunday after the Office of Refugee Resettlement, multiple attempts to deny her access to her abortion. Justice for the millions of women who have abortions each year and for those who still aren't able to access that care and cannot exercise their choice. What will we choose? I'm eternally grateful for people like you here in this room 
who understand how vital the work that we do is for our patients and our community at large. There is a purposefulness in this work. And it's my honor to stand here before you as someone who shares in this purpose with you. Thank you. That's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you have a question for Ask Mabel, visit our new and improved website, mabelwadsworth.org, and click on Contact Us. Thank you for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by Mabel Wadsworth Center and Community Radio WERU. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can find them on weru.org in the archives or at mabelwadsworth.org. You can also find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or through whatever podcast app you use. Tune in next month at our new time, the first Wednesday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or at weru.org.